Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hash It Out. I am your co-host, Deborah, joined today by Janae and our new co-host, Chelsea. Today, we will be discussing the 2020 election, which is coming up. But before we dive into it, I'll give Chelsea a chance to introduce herself. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm super excited to be here and to be joining this new program. Um, As Deborah said, my name is Chelsea. I go by she, her, her pronouns. I'm a junior this year at IEPUI, majoring in secondary education social studies with a concentration in urban education and a minor in Africana studies. And this is my second year in the Social Justice Scholars program. Thank you for introducing yourself, Chelsea. We're glad to have you as a part of our team. Before we dive into the topics, we want to lay down some foundation for the content we're going to discuss today, which are the presidential candidates, vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris, and angry black woman theory and voter suppression. The presidential candidates for this election are Donald Trump and Mike Pence running for the Republican Party, and Joe Biden and Kamala Harris from the Democratic Party. In this episode, we will expand on each candidate and some of their policies, specifically those that are important to be aware of as students. Okay, so what is the angry black woman theory? Um, It is a stereotype that has been held for many, many generations, going back all the way to the transatlantic slave trade. Um, It is a stereotype that stigmatizes all black women as ill-tempered or extremely aggressive. Since slavery, there have been many, many different characterizations of who and what the black woman is. You have the mammy who were enslaved African-American women that were tasked with domestic housework and worked in white American households. There is the Jezebel. She is often perceived as sexually promiscuous. Um, And then there's the sapphire. That is the most dominant portrayal of black women, even from slavery all the way in today. The sapphire archetype portrays black women as malicious, stubborn, overbearing, unnecessarily loud and violent. Okay, so I'm going to talk about what is voter suppression, and I'm just going to lay down a foundation about it like Deborah said. So for those of you who do not know, voter suppression is a strategy used to influence the outcome of an election by discouraging or preventing a specific group of people from voting. So in simpler terms, what this usually looks like is a few polling places in minority neighborhoods with fewer voting machines, making the drive far and the wait in line 12 plus hours. And that is not an exaggeration. As I remember as a child going and having to stand in line with my parents for 10 plus hours just to cast a vote. While in predominantly white neighborhoods, there are a surplus of voting machines and a five to 10 minute wait. Yeah, so I'm really excited to kind of dive into these topics. So now that we've laid a foundation, let's go ahead and do that. So we will be giving a quick overview of where each candidate stands when it comes to policing, DACA and Dreamers, student loan debt and climate change. Before I talk about where each candidate stands on the issue of DACA and Dreamers, I'll give some quick background on what DACA is and who are the Dreamers. So the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals, or DACA program, shields young undocumented immigrants who often arrived at a very young age in circumstances beyond their control from deportation. The recipients of DACA have grown up as Americans, identify themselves as Americans, and many speak only English and have no memory or connection with the country where they were born. Under current immigration law, most of these young people had no way to gain legal residency even though they have lived in the U.S. most of their lives. DACA allows non-U.S. citizens who qualify to remain in the country for two years and it is a, a program that can be renewed. Recipients are eligible for work authorization and other benefits and are shielded from deportation. Since DACA began, 787,580 people have been approved for the program. DACA is largely seen as successful and has assisted young people in a variety of ways. A 2017 national study revealed that 91% of DACA respondents are currently employed. 
Their average hourly wage is $17.46 an hour, up from $10.29 before receiving DACA. 45% of respondents are currently in school, and among those currently in school, 72% of them are pursuing a bachelor's degree or higher. DACA recipients include doctors, nurses, grocery store workers, childcare providers, cleaners, business owners, restaurant workers, and first responders. They are literally everywhere and could be anyone. The recipients of DACA are often called DREAMers in reference to the Development Relief and Education for Alien Minors Act, or the DREAM Act. Donald Trump has sought to end DACA. He believes the program is unlawful and unconstitutional and that it should be completely abolished. Trump has repeatedly railed against DACA as part of his anti-immigration agenda, but three years into his administration, he has been unable to end the program following a series of lawsuits. The Trump administration has blocked new applicants to the program, and as of August 21st this year, the recipients can only renew their status for one year instead of two. Joe Biden says that he wants to protect Dreamers and their families. On his website, it says that Biden will remove the uncertainty for Dreamers by reinstating the DACA program, and he will explore all legal options to protect their families from inhumane separation. Biden will also ensure Dreamers are eligible for federal student aid, such as loans and Pell Grants, and also that they are included in his proposals to provide access to community college without debt. He will also invest in Hispanic and minority-serving institutions, which will help Dreamers contribute even more to the economy. So what do you guys think about each presidential nominee's stance on DACA? So I'm definitely with Joe Biden on keeping the program. I think that since Trump cannot take it away that he's trying to make it harder for people by instead of making it every two years you have to apply every year so um, definitely with Joe Biden as we know this is stolen land this is not ours so people should be able to come um, what I find funny is actually the the hypocrisy um, of not just the Trump administration when it comes to, to DACA, but of a lot of people's sentiments when it comes to DACA. Um, I think of what, you know, DACA people, DACA recipients are called, and they're called dreamers. And when you think about it, their dream is only to have a better life in this country. And was that not the same dream of our founding fathers? Was that not the same dream of the people who came over from England and, you know, pretty much took Native American land um, was that not their dream to find to find a different country, a country that made them feel safe, that made them feel wanted, where they could succeed in all their dreams? Um, I think it's absolutely hypocritical for us to tell these people that they are not allowed liberty in the pursuit of happiness that our Constitution grants when our founding fathers created that Constitution so they could have those exact same things. Um, so definitely, like Janae, like like you, Deborah. I'm on the side of Joe Biden when it comes to DACA Dreamers, just because not only is it just morally right, um, I have family and friends who are DACA recipients. Um, I have family and friends who are immigrants, so it only makes sense for that for me to believe that. Um, and just because it's just the it's the right thing to do, you know what I mean? Yeah, I definitely feel you on that. And I think when it comes to DACA and Dreamers, um, people are so I guess quick to like want them out but like like i said these are these people are doctors they're nurses they're contributing to the economy um they may not have come into the country legally but they are american we see them every day but all these people who go around spewing hate against dreamers and daca recipients 
Like for all they know, that could be their doctor. That could be the person bagging their items at the store. Um, you need them when they're there, but you want them gone when you don't know who it is. See, that's hypocrisy. So I'll go ahead and let Chelsea kind of talk about where each candidate stands when it comes to policing. Um, I think one of the biggest things of this election season has been policing, just given the tragic incidents that happened this summer with Ahmaud Aubrey and Drayshawn Reed and Breonna Taylor and Elijah McClain. Um, you know, we we stand with their families and we stand on the side of Black Lives Matter. So I just want to put that out there. Um, you know, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. Um, so it's not clear whether or how much most Americans' day-to-day -day relationships with police would change under the Trump or Biden administration. I think that was pretty evident in the presidential debate. Um, police departments are locally run and primarily regulated by local and state laws um, with collective bargaining agreements and police unions often serving as breaks against change. Though the federal government does have some power by providing funding or by forcing oversight via consent decrees, um, that's usually to encourage change in individual departments. Donald Trump has sometimes talked about policing as an authoritarian leader might, emphasizing domination and force over civil liberties and due process. As protest and violence flared in Minneapolis this spring and summer after the tragic and unjustified death of George Floyd, Trump threatened to send in the military, and he actually tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And I don't know about y'all, but I was actually appalled that the leader of our country would actually say something like that. Um, he has also celebrated police violence against journalists, recently describing police manhandling of one reporter as a beautiful sight. Um, Biden has also refused to embrace calls to defund the police. He has called the vast majority of officers decent, honorable people while urging problem officers to be prosecuted. In his 2020 platform, Biden supports boosting funding for community-oriented policing and hiring police forces that reflect the racial makeup of the communities they serve. He also proposes pairing police with social workers and experts on mental health, substance abuse, and disabilities to respond to calls for service. Biden's platform will reverse the Trump administration's position on consent decrees and expand the Justice Department's oversight powers of troubled local departments to include systemic misconduct by prosecutors' offices. So what do you guys think about that? So I want to first start by saying that the fact that he gave the green light for his followers to basically shoot protests in the street is disgusting and disrespectful and just awful that the man who is supposed to be running this country thinks that it's okay to say that when the looting starts, the shooting starts. No, it doesn't. A building can be built back up again. A person who was shot and killed by police, that's it. They can't come back. So that was just really upsetting. And I also want to say that Joe Biden not embracing the defund police um, idea is a little worrying, but um, I hope he's open to listen more about why we say that. Yeah, I agree with you, Janae, that um, Biden refusing to embrace the cause of defund the police is a little concerning. But I would say that at the very least, he acknowledges that there's a problem as opposed to Trump who incites it. And like you said, um, Trump, like his tweets, like, they encourage people to go out there and cause more harm than good. But at least Biden, I feel like he listens more to the people. Um, at the very least, um, supporting community-oriented policing, I think, is a very good step. 
because um, I've said it before and I'll say it again, representation is important. And I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. But I think that the fact that he also at least recognizes the importance of um, utilizing social workers and the experts on mental health instead of, you know, having the police deal with all of that is also like an important point. So I think when comparing the two opponents, Biden is better when it comes to this stance. He may not be exactly what we're looking for, but he's definitely the better option. Um, I also want to dispel this myth that defunding the police means that, oh, we want to take away the police, all the police's financial resources, which is not the case. Basically, what we're saying when we say defund the police is we're asking the federal government to take all this funding that you're giving the police to handle jobs that may not be in their caliber, may not be in their jurisdiction, and give it to those who actually went to school for this. Um, I think one of the main ones that I always talk about is mental health. Sometimes, and we've seen this in a lot of different cases when it comes to the police dealing with mental health, is that they always do not know what they're doing. So why not take that funding that you're giving them and use that to mental health organizations that know what they're doing. Give that to professionals that can further their research, that can that can further their profession and, and what they went to school for. Um, so I really wanted to dispel that myth that defunding the police is not saying we want to take all their financial resources. That's not what it means. It's basically saying there's a lot of money being given to police departments around the country that can go to other areas that are well needed as well. Yeah, I I think that's definitely an important distinction to make. I think there's a lot of stigma around the phrase defund the police simply because people don't take the time to learn about what it is. They kind of stick to those three words and assume they know what it means. So um, moving on, we're going to kind of talk about student loan debt. So student loans have outpaced credit card and auto debt as a burden to Americans. And each year, 70% of college graduates start off their lives in the red. The average balance is around 30000 up from 10000 in the early 1990s, and many borrowers owe $100,000 or more. The typical monthly payment is $400, which I don't know about y'all, but that's a lot of money to me. Trump has proposed monthly payments for student loan borrowers that would be 12.5% of their discretionary income. Undergraduate students would pay for 15 years and graduate students for 30 years. Trump has repeatedly called for doing away with public service loan forgiveness. This is a program that was signed into law by President George W. Bush in 2007 and allows certain non-for-profit and government employees to have their federal student loans canceled after 10 years of on-time payments. Joe Biden wrote in a Medium post, I propose to forgive all undergraduate tuition-related federal student debt from two- and four-year public colleges and universities for debt holders earning up to $125,000 with appropriate phase-outs to avoid a cliff. The federal government would pay the monthly payment in lieu of the borrower until a forgivable portion of the loan was paid off. This benefit would also apply to individuals holding federal student loans for tuition from private, historically black colleges and universities and minority-serving institutions. He listed the following additional proposals. Immediately cancel a minimum of $10,000 of student debt per person, as proposed by Senator Warren in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. Those earning less than $25,000 per year will not have to make monthly payments and will accrue no interest. Those earning more than $25,000 per year will pay no more than 5% of discretionary income toward payments. After 20 years, the remainder of federal student loans will be forgiven without any tax burden. Those who participate in public service will be eligible for additional federal loan forgiveness, including $10,000 per year forgiveness, for up to five years. So what do you guys think about their stances when it comes to student loan debt and I guess the issue in general? 
I guess as a student um, in a four-year university, I'm definitely on Joe Biden's side with forgiveness of loan debt. I concur with Janae. I'm definitely on Joe Biden's side with that. I was fortunate enough to receive a full ride to IEPUI, so that's not something that I had to worry about. But, you know, then again, who knows what the next three semesters hold for me. Um, but I also have family and friends who graduated or are currently in student loan debt right now. And I'll say this about our generation. I'm not going to say that our generation is set up for failure, but I say that our generation does have a lot of stress when it comes to just financial stability um, and student loan debt, I would say, is the spearhead of that. Just for the simple fact is we go to school for four years to receive these bachelor's degrees that jobs want for only for them to pay us $15 an hour, which I'm not complaining about, but at the same time, that's never going to be enough to pay back all the money that we had to acquire or take out as a loan just to get these jobs that want these bachelor's degrees. So I'm definitely on Joe Biden's side when it comes to student loan forgiveness because our generation goes through enough as it is. Um, and I think student loan debt should be the least of our worries. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that just because of student loan debt and like all the interest, a lot of times students will go through their undergrad, they'll get their bachelor's degree, which is required for the jobs and the positions they wanna have. And then they'll just see that the income that they're receiving from those jobs isn't adding up to the amount that they have to pay. And I think oftentimes when it comes to student loans, they tend to like take advantage of the fact that we're entering college mostly straight out of high school. A lot of us don't have previous experience with money and they kind of use that to kind of screw us for life essentially when it comes to like student loan debt. So I think that forgiveness is definitely something that I'm on board with Biden about. So next, we'll go ahead and pass it off to Janae to talk a little bit about climate change. So I'm going to talk about Trump's stance on climate change first. Trump says that his priorities are clean water and air, but then he contradicts himself by saying that he wants to boost U.S. production of oil and natural gas, which, you know, that works against each other. Trump has supported legislation that removes garbage from oceans, allocated additional funding for national parks, public lands, and $38 billion toward clean water infrastructure. The president has denied the scientific consensus on climate change, and his administration has worked to scrub mentions of climate change from government websites and reverse many of the climate policies put in place during the Obama administration. He has also pulled the U.S. out of the International Paris climate deal, and I'll talk a little bit about that in Joe Biden's um, stance on climate change as well so that we can see how those two compare because Trump wants to pull out of the Paris deal and Biden wants to rejoin it. So to combat climate change, Biden proposes his ambitious clean energy plan, which would pour $2 trillion into a set of research and development, development goals throughout his first term with his principal objective being to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Biden wants to essentially modernize American infrastructure, invest in clean energy, and make climate-focused advances in both auto and transportation industries to cut emissions and increase job opportunities. So that definitely sounds like an amazing plan. Notably, he says that his plan for the auto industry will create one million new jobs with the option to be part of a union. Biden also pledges to rid the power sector of carbon pollution by 2035. Um, and as I also mentioned, Biden would also like to seek to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords that, of course, um, President Trump pulled out of. So what do you guys think about this uh, climate deal that 
Biden is proposing. It sounds very promising, but it is a lot of promises and there's a lot of like deadlines by 2030, by 2050. And basically, what do you guys think? Do you think he can do it? And what do you think about Trump climate stances? So I think that just the fact that Trump doesn't agree with the scientific consensus on climate change is problematic because our generation and the generation that comes after us, we are the ones that have to live in this world and we want our environment to be as healthy as it can be. But to have a leader who doesn't even believe that there's a problem to begin with or doesn't agree with the scientific community, again, people who have studied this for years, who have dedicated their lives to it, who have gone to school for minimum probably eight years and again dedicate their entire lives to learning about the climate and the environment and you know the earth and what is necessary and what harms it and all of that and he doesn't even agree with them like where does he justify that his view on climate change is more accurate than those of the people who have dedicated their lives to it and I just think it's really problematic that this person who doesn't even believe that this is an issue who isn't going to be affected by the long-term effects of his decisions is able to make these decisions if he were to be reelected or even now as president he's able to make these decisions it's just completely problematic and i really like that um biden wants to bring us back into the the paris climate deal because i don't i don't think we should have left it in the first place um i wholeheartedly agree with the both of you i'll say it's not only problematic i think it's very very concerning as the leader of our country that you don't think climate change is real. You don't think that these things that you are doing and that you are saying in regards to climate change is concerning yourself. Um, I also think it's very hypocritical that he want he cares or you know he says he cares about clean water and fresh air, but then you're also promoting the increase of natural oil and natural gases. But most importantly, it's just very, very concerning for me and not just for me, but for the future generations that we have to bring into this country. So now I'm going to talk more in depth about uh, voter suppression and what it looks like. So one that isn't spoke about a lot is how voter ID laws um, definitely attribute to voter suppression. 36 states have identification requirement at the polls and seven states have strict photo ID laws under which voters must present one of a limited set of forms of government-issued photo ID in order to cast a regular ballot vote. No exceptions. These strict ID laws are a part of an ongoing strategy to suppress the vote, and it works. An estimated 21 million U.S. citizens do not have government-issued photo ID identification as they are not accessible to everyone and can be costly. The next one I want to talk about is voter registration restrictions. And before I talk about that, I just want to say that I found out about a week ago that in other countries they don't even have voter registration, which I found really weird because America's always seemed this, this advanced place, but um, I guess not. So basically in other countries, when you turn um, the legal age of usually 18, I think it is for everyone, you're put into the voter hub. You don't have to do anything. But here in the States, as we know, you have to register and there is a deadline. Restrictions can include requiring documents to prove citizenship or identification and penalties for voter registration drives or limiting the window of time in which voters can register. So I know for Indiana, our registration just ended, I believe, October 3rd. So most states have a deadline. 
There's also the most common form of voter suppression, which is voting purges. And this is cleaning up voter rolls and can be a responsible part of election administration because many people move or die or become ineligible to vote for other reasons. The problem with this is that some states use this process as a method of mass disenfranchisement, purging eligible voters from rolls for illegitimate reasons or based on inaccurate data, and often without adequate notice to the voters. A single purge can stop up to hundreds of thousands of people from voting. Often voters only learn they've been purged when they show up at the polls on election day. So I want to talk about a little bit about um, an example of this, which would be Stacey Abrams in 2018 in Georgia and her election. Um, it really makes me upset when I think about it. They purged a lot of votes um, during that election. She definitely should have won. And to go more in depth about when they said um, the voters aren't notified, they really aren't. You will show up to vote, you will wait in line for however many hours, which as we know for usually minorities, that can be 10 to plus hours, you'll make it to the front and they will tell you that you cannot vote. And they'll make up some excuse, you know, oh, there's an error in the system, or you got moved to a different county, and that'll be it. Like, you just can't vote because it's it's election day, or it's, you know, as we know, we have deadlines. So the deadline has already passed, so you can't go and fix this. So, yeah, it's, it's very upsetting. Lastly, I will talk about voter suppression against felons. Due to racial bias in the criminal justice system, felony disenfranchisement laws affect black people more often than anyone else. Okay, so I just want to back up a little bit and talk about um, how crazy it is that this law is actually rooted in the Jim Crow era. Um, a lot of people make it seem like it was that long ago, but I'm sure we all have grandparents who lived through it. And um, it's just really crazy to me that in 2020, we have a law that was basically the blueprint for um, this suppression against felons. So what do you guys think about that? Um, I'm, I'll say that I'm really glad that you brought up, you know, Jim Crow um, laws and how that can have an effect on what is, you know, happening today. I think a lot of people believe the theory that because Jim Crow was in the 1950s and 60s that that was so long ago that it doesn't affect anything that happens now. I have a, my father was born in 1955. He actually celebrated his birthday today. So he's 65 years old. My mother um, was born in 1961. So you can't say that Jim Crow and the civil rights movement was so long ago when you actually still have people who are living and breathing that can attest to the fact that Black people were met with so much persecution for just trying to exercise their constitutional right to vote. And you even see that now with the school to prison pipeline. You see that with mass incarceration that is affecting predominantly black and brown people, that this still affects their rights to vote. Um, so I'm, I'm really thankful and I'm really glad that you brought up Jim Crow and how those how that can have a lasting effect of how we as black people and as brown people maneuver today. It's just crazy. Like, this is our right to vote. And you guys are doing everything you can to make it so that we can't exercise that right. Like Janae said, smaller amount of polling stations in our communities. The harsher sentences for, like, black people and people of color and then the voter suppression against felons in that self could be an entire episode. But there's just so much that goes into voter suppression. And I think my biggest problem with it is that they're so sneaky about it. 
they don't let you know, oh, you can't vote, by the way. And if they, which they never do, but if they did, they'd probably do it after you could do something about it. So once, like, it's at the point where, okay, well, you're not going to be able to vote this election year. So there's really nothing you can do about it. And they're just, it's so sneaky and it's so underhanded and their methods are not something that people know about. Um, So next, I'll kind of let Chelsea talk about um, the vice presidential debate. Thank you. Um, For somebody that's always been heavily involved and interested in politics, this election season has probably had the the biggest effect on me. And I'll say probably even bigger than the 2008 and 2012 election where Barack Obama was elected, um, because for the first time in, in my time, um, you know, just because I wasn't born in 1972 when Shirley Chisholm uh, was running for president. I would just like to also add that Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman to, um, you know, be nominated by a um, major party ticket. So um, this one has had, this election season has had the biggest effect on me because for the first time in my time, I'm actually seeing a black woman actually nominated by the Democratic Party actually running um, and so that's that's very, very, you know, monumental to me. But one of the things that I think, you know, I kind of took to heart as not just an American citizen, but as a black American citizen is the vice presidential debate. Um, I feel as though as a black woman on a national stage debating with a white man, Senator Kamala Harris had to do more than just offer her vision of what she thought America would be if she were to be elected as vice president. Um Senator Harris was not only expected to follow the rules of the debate, which was following the time rules, you know, not interrupting and maintaining some type of decorum, but she was also expected to follow the unspoken rules of being a woman, but not just being a woman, being a black woman. Um, She had to be calm while being disrespected, collected and resisting emotionality. Most importantly, as a black woman, she had to resist anger. Um, And I think that that's probably one of the hardest things to do. as a black woman in that particular setting was resisting anger and resisting the um resisting the urge to want to argue back and be argumentative um as you know vice president pence was being deborah walsh who was actually the director for the center of american women in politics at rutgers university said something that even i as a black woman completely understood she said here we are in 2020 and women and people of color are still confronted with these stereotypes you have to think very hard at all times how is this going to be taken am i smiling enough am i not smiling is my voice too high am i talking too fast am i appearing to be angry is what i'm wearing going to be seen as school marmish or too sexy walsh said when you are a woman at the highest level and you are a black woman that there is an overlay of double standards that is really taxing and sometimes is a part of the calculus all the time. Um, I find myself always thinking these exact same sentiments um, as a black woman here at IEPY, which, you know, let's not sugarcoat it, is a predominantly white institution. I often have to think about how am I looking to other people? Is my face, you know, looking pleasant? Do I look pleasant to talk to? Even right now in this podcast, am I sounding too angry when I'm really just being passionate about this subject? Am I talking too fast? Are viewers who are listening to this going to perceive me as being angry? Um, as a black woman who is a student leader on this campus, I often have to think about how does my positionality 
look to other people. So I always have to question my every move and mannerism. Academic research suggests that black women are disproportionately regarded by white audiences as too angry, too loud, and too aggressive. As black women, we always have to be the mature ones, I feel like, even all the while facing immaturity. We have to smile even in the midst of disrespect. And Harris had a fine line to walk during that vice presidential debate. There are a lot of things that Senator Harris couldn't say that her face said all too well, and I felt her. Because when you're in spaces that are not meant for you to be in, spaces that people, the dominant race does not want you in, you have to sometimes walk that fine line of, there's so much that I want to say, but I can't say, and her face showed it. It definitely showed it. I think anybody who watched watched the vice presidential debate definitely saw that. Um, Social media made memes of her. Other people criticized her for being immature and sophomoric. And one of the things that angered me as a woman was that she continually had to tell Vice President Pence, I'm speaking. And I think as women that we constantly have to say in this male-dominated country, I'm speaking. I think often of the women's rights movement, we had to constantly say, I'm speaking. It's my turn. It's my turn to talk. It's my turn to vote. It's my turn to be at the table. You know, and as a black woman, I think that that's even more hard to maneuver in this country is that because when we're saying I'm speaking, we don't want to say that we're being loud. We don't want people to say that we're being aggressive when we're really just saying, yo, it's my turn to talk. (laughs) Like, you've had your moment. You've had your piece. Allow me to do that. And I found Senator Harris saying that a lot to Vice President Pence is that I'm speaking, even when she was making her points. He would constantly interrupt her and would anger me, not as just a black woman, but as a viewer is like, you had your turn. You've had four years to say your piece. Now's my turn to speak. This, you know, this debate is only an hour and a half long. You're going to allow me to speak my turn. Um, And I remember being on Twitter all that night during the debate, um, looking at different comments surrounding surrounding it. And there was one that said, when Kamala Harris said, I'm speaking, I felt it. Every woman on this earth, alive or dead, felt it. Because we know what it means to be talked over, interrupted, disbelieved. You know, I feel like as women, we live in a society in which we always have to prove ourselves. We always have to prove that I can do this job, if not better than you. We always have to prove that even 100 years later after 1919, when the 19th Amendment was passed, forgiving us the right to vote, that I deserve a right to vote. I deserve a right to speak on politics. I deserve a right to have a say in what the future of my country looks like. We, you know, we always have to prove that we're capable of doing the same job as a man can do. And that was a lot to unpack. So what do you guys think? I want to start by saying, Chelsea, I think that that was so amazing. And as a black woman myself, sometimes it's hard for me to put into words how I'm feeling. And you definitely just put all of that um, into words in a perfect way. And um, I'm just really thankful for that. So thank you for speaking up and being so passionate about this topic. Um, I also agree when Kamala Harris said, I'm speaking. I think that was a very important moment for women everywhere. Because like you said, that is our reality as women. We constantly have to reaffirm, especially when when we're in situations where we may be like the only or one of few women in the room having conversations with mostly men, we we constantly have to let them know, hey, I'm talking, you need to let me finish. 
And one thing that comes to mind is after the debate, I remember having a conversation with a professor and she mentioned that she also felt that that was a very powerful moment. That was one that stood out to her because her being an, like a doctor and she's recruited to talk to people at meetings and stuff like that. And she goes into these meetings and there's men and they don't let her speak. And she constantly feels like she has to let them know, hey, I'm speaking. Can you let me finish? Like you asked for her to be there and you're still disrespecting her. Just just like the, the tweet said, like every woman on this earth felt that because that is our reality. When Kamala Harris said, I'm speaking, I remember feeling like thankful, like you like, yes, she's speaking. Let her finish. And I again, that was just such a powerful thing for me to see. And I think that was definitely powerful for women everywhere. And I also think about like young girls who might have been watching this debate with their parents or had it on the TV and just like the representation of Kamala Harris as a woman on that stage, I think it set a good example for um, for girls everywhere, really for women everywhere, that your voice is valid and that when you take initiative and you speak your mind, you deserve to be heard. And if someone tries to interrupt you, let them know I'm speaking. This is my turn. I'm saying what I need to say and you're going to listen to it. So that's pretty much everything that we have for this episode today. Um, thank you for listening. Before we go, do either of you have any final thoughts about anything that we've discussed so far? I will, I will say, please go vote. Your vote matters. Do not think that if you don't vote this time, it'll be okay. So please go vote and thank you for listening. Um, I'll say for me, uh, my final thoughts would be if you did not listen or adhere to anything else that we said during this podcast, listen to this, take heed to this. Um, I concur with Janae that this election, if not any other election, ha is probably going to be the most important election of our lifetimes as far as my generation goes, but as far as any generation. Um, please vote. Please go vote. I At this point, I really don't care who you vote for. Um, I have my own beliefs, as does everybody else. But please go vote just to make sure your voice is known. Your voice matters and because your vote is not just a vote, but it's your voice. It's your choice. It's what you choose to decide for not just you yourself, but your future generations to come. I know a lot of us in this our generation are starting families. They're having children. They're getting married. And so you want to think about what do you want your kind of country, your children to grow up in these next four years. Um, so please go and vote. And for my black and brown brothers and sisters, our, I just want to put this out there, that our ancestors fought tooth and nail, were persecuted, were killed, were beaten to bloody popes just for us to have this constitutional right to vote. So if you're not voting for you, vote for those who didn't get to vote, who fought for your right to vote, even though they knew that they probably wouldn't get theirs. Thank you both. Um, again, I also agree. Voting is definitely important, especially in this election. Um, that being said, we'll go ahead and end the episode here. Remember, go out, cast your vote. It's really important this year and stay safe. Mm -hmm.